All right, I have to get used to this. We're separated by distance, but yet we're together in the Holy Spirit. And I have to remember that I just need to focus on one point tonight. But I want to welcome you to uh, Riverside Calvary Chapel tonight as we continue in our study of the Bible from 30,000 feet. And we're going to be taking a look at 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy tonight. So uh, why don't you open your Bibles with me, and we'll begin to take a look there. But um, just want to give you a little bit of an overview of the Bible first, or the, the letter first. The author is Paul, and that's made very clear from both letters in the opening verses. The date of 1 Timothy is approximately 80 A.D. 62 to about 64, and then 2 Timothy is A.D. 66 uh, or 67. And Paul wrote these letters with a specific purpose in mind, to give advice and instruction to a young pastor named Timothy. Now, the outline that we're going to be taking a look at tonight um, in 1 Timothy, first of all, is uh, the message of the church in chapter 1, and then the members of the church in chapter 2, the ministers of the church, chapters 3 and 4, and the ministry of the church, chapters 5 and 6. Now, most of his life, Paul had labored to bring the gospel, the good news of salvation, to people. And, and he had labored in all ways, and he labored in suffering too. He suffered for the work. We're told in Scripture that he was shipwrecked and beaten, stoned, imprisoned. He went hungry, he went thirsty, and he was persecuted for the gospel. And so he now writes this letter to this man, Timothy, encouraging him to follow in his footsteps. Uh, that, that's a, a, an interesting way of trying to draw someone in to being a pastor, being a minister. I want you to do what I've done. You're going to suffer the same things. You're going to suffer shipwreck and thirst and hunger. You're going to be beaten for your faith and you will be persecuted. But Paul wanted Timothy to know to build the church on a foundation of the word of God long after he was gone. And so this, this letter to Timothy is a letter to the church, to those who answer the call to ministry. Now, First and Second Timothy are two letters of what are called the pastoral letters, but that doesn't mean that what is written in them only applies to pastors. These letters apply to all Christians. And in these letters, we find warnings about false doctrine, instruction on public worship, how the church was to gather, and it also teaches us about mature leadership, what leadership looks like, and, and how to develop mature leadership. But before we begin, I, I want to open up in prayer. So would you bow your heads with me? Lord, find us faithful in learning to follow you through the example of Paul. Challenge us to lead our homes, to be examples of Christ at our work, to be examples in the church and also in the world as imitators of the one who saved us. 
Oh God, I pray that you would give us liberally of your Holy Spirit to strengthen us in trials these days. And so I pray in his precious name. Amen. So we're going to take a look at the message of the church in chapter 1. So let's read together from verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. So immediately in in beginning this letter, Paul lays out his authority. And this is an authority that he had not taken on himself, but it was an authority that was given to him at the command of God our Savior and of Christ our hope. And and he's, he's presenting the gospel, which is the good news. And he's saying the gospel hasn't come from man. Man didn't make this up. It comes from God. And it comes to us through God's Son, Jesus Christ. And he, he gives this charge now to Timothy. And he, Timothy, is to charge others not to teach any other doctrine but that which was received by Paul from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that word charge is a military term. And throughout the letters, both First and Second Timothy, Paul uses several military terms. And this military term charge, or how it's translated charge, means to give a command or an order. And the purpose of this command is love. The whole purpose of presenting the gospel is to reveal the love of God because the gospel at its very foundation is a message of love. Now here in this world we live in, this this world of diverse views, this is a unique message, a message of love. It's an exclusive message, but it is a message of love. And yet... Even then, in Paul's day, Timothy's day, as now, there are those that want to twist this message and to make it about something else. But the gospel of love, this good news of peace with God, must be a consistent message. And so Paul charges Timothy, stick to the message. Keep the main thing the main thing. There is no room for anything else. The gospel is the message of the church. There is no other. And it was critical in his day. Look what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4. I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 8. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Those are strong words. Strong words. Because they were necessary in order to maintain the message of the church. You know, we are in a war for the truth today. We are, we are fighting moral relativism, spiritual liberalism, and questions about the authority of the Bible. There is still a need, as 
as Jude said, to earnestly contend for the faith. And so we must not change or, or water down the gospel because Paul says in Romans 1 verse 16 that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. So I, I want to tell you this evening, tonight, that the gospel isn't a message about your best life now. The, the gospel is a message that gives life with God for all eternity. Now, Paul himself testifies what it was like before he heard the gospel, before he, he understood what it is that Jesus had come to bring, before he understood what the message of the church was, before he heard the gospel. Look at verse 13. He said, I, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor, an insolent man. But then he says, but I obtained mercy. And Paul then explains how he obtained this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am chief. And then Paul says that he then became a pattern of those who believe on him for everlasting life. So Paul is telling Timothy to be a pattern like he was a pattern. Paul was an example First of all, in recognizing his shortcomings. God gives grace to those who are aware of their inadequacies. But he's re he resists the proud. And the proud are those who have a difficult time relating to the good news of salvation because they think they have it all figured out. I, I don't need to have this good news. I don't need to know about Jesus Christ. I know what the world is all about and I know who I am. But that's pride speaking. You see, my friends, in our, in our flaws, in our flaws, the power of God is revealed most gloriously. So we move on into chapter 2 as we look at the members of the church. Paul was calling Timothy to present the truth so people could know God. And not just know God, but, but this, is, this is where the message becomes unique. Not just to know God, but to have fellowship with God. To have a relationship with God. To have communion with God. And the Apostle John would later write in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, it's, in, it's through the gospel then that we become the body of Christ. Instead of being separated and alienated through our wicked wor works, the gospel reconciles us. The gospel restores a relationship that was broken by our wickedness, by our sin. It restores us to God so that we can once again have a relationship with our creator through his word and to know him and to know his will for us. You may not realize that tonight, but God has a purpose for you. He has a, a will for you. Now, as we look at the church, what we call the body of Christ, it's made up of various groups of people. But we all have a common purpose. 
So in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul instructs us then how we find and fulfill that purpose as members of the church. Look what he says. Therefore, I exert, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so we see that one of the purposes of the church is when they come together, the body is to pray. The body of Christ is to pray. Now, I don't know about you, but I find quite often that prayer is my last priority. And I think sometimes that's the case with the body of Christ. It's our last priority, but it really should be our first. How much do we pray? What do we pray about? Who do we pray for? Paul here is suggesting three things or, or three types of prayers that we, can, that we can pray or be in prayer about. First of all, he says supplications. It's not a word we hear much uh, today, but supplications. Other translations you may be reading might say things like petitions. And what these are, are prayers for specific needs. These are, are prayers that are, are brought to the Lord with specific need in mind. So what needs do you have? What needs do you, uh, do those that know you or know, or I'm sorry, what needs to those that, that you know have? What needs have come to your attention? Then he says, secondly, prayers, prayers. And that might seem kind of uh, a general thing. Paul's telling us to pray. But when you take a look at the original language, you take a look at the Greek meaning of it, it suggests prayers that are offered with reverence to a God who hears and acts. You see, when we pray, we must understand that we are praying to a God who hears, and we are praying to a God who acts. And so when we pray, do we take time to offer reverence to our God? We should always approach God with reverence. Jesus taught us to pray in Luke chapter 11. In verse 2 he says, This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, there it is again. The purpose of prayer is to enact God's will here on earth. Thirdly, Paul says, intercessory prayer. Now this is prayer which is addressed to God, recognizing God's sovereignty, recognizing his sovereign power. You see, only God can do the work that needs to be done in us. I can't do it in you. No one can do it in me. Only God can do the work that needs to be done. You see, if we could address the need that people have, we wouldn't need to pray. But Paul says we need to pray, and we must pray. And the body of Christ should be a body of prayer. So these three things, when you look at them, are very closely related. So we don't need to get all hung up about when we pray. Am I praying uh, a prayer of reverence or a prayer of supplication or a prayer of petition or whatever it may be? It doesn't matter. We just need to be praying 
We need, we need to remember that we are to pray with understanding of who we are praying to and for whom and for what we are to pray. Now, as Paul wrote this letter, he's writing it during the reign of Caesar Nero. If you know history at all, you'll know that Caesar Nero was a despotic ruler and he hated all things Christian. He became a persecutor of the church near the end of his reign. And yet here Paul says, pray for all men, for kings, and for all who are in authority. Now, you might not want to pray for some, someone or somebody or a government that is despotic or persecutes Christians or hates uh, you for whatever other reason. You see, it doesn't matter the politics of our government. What matters is our obedience to God. We pray because as Paul says there, it is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. As Paul goes on, he then gives instruction to men, to the men of the church. The men are to pray, verse 8. They are to set the example of prayer in the church. Men were instructed, were commanded to lift up holy hands in prayer. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Lifting up holy hands in prayer. That, that's more than just doing this. That's more than just the, the position that we take in prayer. It's the attitude that we take in prayer. It's the lifestyle that prayer brings to us. It's to be lived in the church and it's to be lived in our homes. Men, we are instructed in the word of God that we are to pray for our families. We're to pray for our wives. We're to pray for our children. And men of prayer draw their families into deeper relationship with God. And that's done through the word and through prayer. Now, William MacDonald, a commentator, writes, he says, men should exhibit holiness and purity selfward, love and peace manward, and unquestioning faith Godward. Here at verse 9 now, we see Paul giving instruction to the women of the church. Men have a responsibility to be an example, to set the example, but women do too. Women aren't left out of uh, this instruction. Paul says there, in like manner. So women also have a leadership role in the church because man or, man or a woman, men and women, are equal in Christ. So this, this idea that's out in the world, that Christianity teaches the subjugation of women, is patently false. It's wrong. Men and women have equality in Christ. We're, we're different, obviously, we're different, but we're equal. And so scripture addresses how we are to serve as Christians within these differences. The world should never dictate how the church is organized because it is God who desires public leadership in the church. And he first of all fall, uh, asks that leadership fall upon men who must take up their responsibilities and take it seriously within the church and then also within the family. 
And what God requires of men and of women is godly leadership. You see, a man's lifestyle should show that he is a man of God. Men, in every aspect of your life, not just on Sundays. And women, as Paul says, likewise, are to show that they are women of God too. And, and how they show it is in modesty, in decency, and propriety, reflecting that, that outward appearance of an inward reality. And as I said, men are to lift up holy hands in submission to God. But women do the exact same thing by their appearance and with propriety and moderation. And when you look, again, you look at the original language, you look at the Greek, the the Greek carries this idea of reverence. And it's that same reverence that men model when they lift up holy hands. And so men, women, we should reflect our faith by our behavior, our dress and our deportment. Nothing that we do, absolutely nothing that we do, should draw attention to ourselves. But rather, how we behave, by how we, how we act or, how, or what we wear, shows our devotion to God. Paul says this is good work. Moving on into chapter 3 and 4, we now look at the ministers of the church. Here in chapter 3 and 4, Paul's instructions are to the leaders of the church. Look at verse 1. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now, bishop uh, is the overseer, or as, as we would call the pastor of the church. In this letter, we have already been instructed in the application of the word of God. Chapter 1 taught us about truth, what it was, what it looks like, where it can be found. Chapter 2 teaches us how to apply that truth in prayer, teaching us to recognize the authority of God that he has instituted not only in the church but also in the world. And we, we learned about our responsibility as men and women, accepting our roles and enabling the church to function best as we obey God. We make a mistake. I really believe that we make a mistake if we isolate these scriptures according to gender or according to position. Well, I'm not a, I'm not a man, so this doesn't apply to me. Or I'm not a woman, this doesn't apply to me. Or I, I'm not a leader in the church, or I'm not a pastor in the church, so it doesn't apply to me. Important lessons would be lost if we did that. So we need to pay attention. We need to read the word with the understanding that it's being spoken to us, regardless of who it may be addressing. These, these instructions are important to every believer because we are the body of Christ. And without each of us doing our part, there wouldn't be a whole. And so he now addresses the overseer or the bishop. And this, this is the leader of the church who provides direction and leadership, and oversight in caring for the body of Christ. 
In Acts chapter 20, verse 28 through 31, we read this. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer to shepherds of the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. An overseer, Paul says, or in Acts says, takes heed over themselves. And this is important. And, and it's, it's to all the flock. So this is not a role then that someone takes on themselves. Overseers, pastors aren't voted in, but a, but a man is called by the Holy Spirit of God. And this calling is made obvious by certain qualifications which are exhibited while serving the body. An overseer shepherds the church. You think about a, a shepherd looking after the, uh, his, his flock of sheep, making sure that they're, they're kept fed and watered and kept clean and kept safe. That, that gives you the picture of, a, of an overseer, a shepherd. But I want you to understand that it's not the overseer's church. It's God's. It's God's church, purchased with his own blood. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, says that the pastor's role and responsibility is to teach the word of God, to prepare God's people for works of service, building the body of Christ morally, intellectually, and spiritually. And the kind of man, the kind of man who fills this office of bishop or overseer or pastor is found in our text here in chapter 3, verse 2. He has to display exceptional quality or character qualities. He has to have an, an aptitude for teaching. He must show leadership over his own home and to be a mature believer. And then look at verse 7. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those, among those who share I'm sorry, among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So, so does this, this leader, does, does he only live for Christ on Sunday and then live for the devil for the next six days? No, that, that, would, be, that would be inconsistent. What he's like in the church should carry over outside of the church. Then we see in verse 8, support for the, for the bishop. And that's the position of deacon. And again, the Greek word simply means a servant or one who serves. And the difference between an overseer and the deacon is that overseers care for the spiritual well-being of the church while the deacon cares for the physical well-being of the church. Pastor Tom Stipe, who pastors a Calvary Chapel in, in Colorado, he often says concerning this difference at elders eld and deacons deek. So this then makes up the church. Here we see what the body of Christ is comprised of. And, and Paul says the body of Christ is to be the pillar and the ground of the truth, verse 14. Another way of looking at that is that the church is to be the support and the base of truth. You see, the church must be about the truth. The gospel is the truth. It is the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. There is no other gospel. And so we must be about teaching the truth. Now, as we begin chapter 4, 
we see that that truth must be given, but it must also be adhered to. Look at verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So, Again, here is the message of the church. It's the truth. And godly ministers of the truth warn people of these things, according to verse 6. And they nourish truth with more truth. Not with false words of comfort. Not with their own ideas of what they should teach. Things of questionable origin. Now, I want to I tell you that there's a lot of weird teaching out there. There's a lot of weird stuff going on. And unless we, we know the truth through the Word of God, unless we see what the Word of God teaches and is instructing us to do, sometimes it's difficult to tell truth from error or error from truth. There's much out there that falsely proclaims to be true. But only the word of God is truth. And so I want to I encourage you, if what you are hearing, if what you are reading, what you are, are being told about what the Bible says or doesn't say, if it doesn't line up with a very clear and simple reading of the word of God, you know, there's, there's no truth that you must be some some elevated teacher in order to be able to understand the word of God, or you must belong to a certain organization or a group in order to understand the word of God. The word of God is is very simple. It's very clear. So when when you are told something and it doesn't line up with the word of God, you're best not to spend any more time on it. Paul says that faith should be exercised. I know we all love to exercise, and it's even harder to do now in this time of social distancing and social isolation, but, you know, our faith needs to be exercised. And so, you know, we have the opportunity, as we've got more time at home, to listen to um, presentations like, like this tonight. We have more opportunity to open up the Bible for ourselves and begin to look into these things. And I encourage you, look into what I'm telling you. See what scriptures say regarding what I'm telling you. You see, I've come to learn recently that we do what we value most. And verse 8 tells us that godliness is profitable. My, my friends, my brothers, and my sisters, there, there is value in godliness because it is the promise of life now and not just for now, but for the future, for all of eternity. I, I can't think of a more valuable message that I can give to someone than to come to know Christ and to come into the presence of God as one of his children. 
Trust in the living God. Trust in the Savior of all men. This is our commandment, the commandment given to the church. This is our teaching. And it's true for old guys like me. (laughs) And it's true for young men and women too. Be an example. Be an example in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And we must be nourished. We must be nourished by the word continually. It's not enough physically to only eat one meal a week. It's not enough. And this is true for us spiritually as well. It's not enough getting, getting um, sufficient nourishment just one day a week because it leaves us weak and it stunts our growth. And now as we move on, we continue to move on into chapter 5 and 6 of First Timothy, we look at the ministry of the church. We end here, First Timothy, looking at the ministry of the church. You see, when godly ministers minister rightly, the church begins to flourish. I love it, you know, when, when a few gather together and then a few more and then before long uh, they have to move outside of their, their house or living room and they have to find bigger places and the church continues to grow. And how we relate to each other says a lot about what we believe. So here in chapter 5, Paul instructs Timothy then about the care for some of the weakest members in, in, in the body. And he 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 look specifically at widows. And he says if a widow's need was real and was not brought on by living for pleasure, first of all, her family was to look after her. But if they, if they couldn't, if they didn't look after the widow, then Paul says that they are denying the faith and they are worse than unbelievers. So families need to look after each other. But if there was no other means of support, if, if the widow didn't have children and her husband had died and there was no other means of support and if she had lived a, a faithful life trusting in God and doing good works for the body of Christ, then she was to be placed on the list of widows and could expect help. There were others that needed to be looked after as well. And look at verse 17. Here it instructs the church that we are to look after our ministers. Those who rule well are accounted worthy of double honor. The laborer is worthy of his wages. And I really do believe that we need to be praying about this during this time of crisis in which we find ourselves. We need to ensure that our minister, our pastors, are being looked after during this time. There was another another problem and this, this happens a lot, and, and it's because, because when you're front and center, when you're the, when you're the face of an organization, even, even a church, it leaves you open to false accusations. And so there has to be protection, guarding against false accusations. And the rule of Scripture is always, from the mouth of two or three witnesses, uh, a situation is determined. Sin must be dealt with, absolutely. But it must be dealt with justly. In chapter 6, Paul begins to deal with how members of the body relate to each other. Now, as we look at these scriptures, 
I want you to know, I want you to understand that Paul and, and Scripture does not condone slavery. But it was a reality in his day. And as much as we'd like to believe it, there's still slavery going on in this day. But regardless of the circumstances, male or female or Greek or Jew, free or slave, we are all called upon to bring glory to God. So while our text is specifically dealing with slaves and masters, we, we can relate this to employees and employers. And first of all, employees are to honor God. Christian employees are to honor God through hard work and by the respect that is shown to their employees. Employers, I should say. If your employer knows that you're a Christian, live up to what you say you are. And remember this. It's not your name or word which is being called into question, but it's God's name and His word. Look at verse 2. Those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. So in other words, if your employer is a believer, don't expect to have an easier time at work. Work hard. Work hard to serve him or her better as it is fitting for a fellow servant. And now Paul ends his letter to his protege, Timothy, by, he, by writing at verse 20, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. So Christians are to, to guard what is being committed to us. When we sit in church and we hear the message of the gospel, the message of the word of God, we are to guard that zealously. And when we present that message, we are to guard it by presenting it as it is written. Not to add our own thoughts, our own opinion to things, but to hold fast, to keep the main thing the main thing. The gospel of grace of God is like a, a treasure deposited in a vault that we are to guard. And one way that we can guard it is by turning away from false things. D.L. Moody said, The Bible will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from the Bible. Guard the gospel. So hold fast to the word of God. Do what it says. Apply it and live it. Now we come to 2 Timothy. So in this second letter to Timothy, Paul is in prison and he's awaiting execution. It's, it's perhaps uh, four or five years since he wrote the first letter to Timothy, and he knows his time is short. Paul knows his time is short, and so he wants to prepare Timothy to continue in the ministry. So 2 Timothy, while it might contain specific instructions to Timothy the pastor, what Paul is writing here is equally applicable to each of us. And here is our outline for 2 Timothy. We're going to see the present calling or standing up for the faith, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to look again at the pastor's character, standing up for your calling, 2 Timothy chapter 2. The practical concerns, 
standing up as you fight, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and then a personal charge, standing up until the end, 2 Timothy 4. So let's take a look at the present calling. Paul begins here at verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. You think about that. As we've been talking about the gospel, it is the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. Think about this. Paul is in prison. He's awaiting execution. So this is a really remarkable thing to say. And yet, Paul doesn't seem too concerned about where he finds himself because Paul had taken the whole of that life. For him, to live was Christ, but to die was gain. He had a full assurance of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Do you, do you have this promise of life? And you know, the day that we are living in right now, it, it makes it really easy to lose hope, doesn't it? It really does. What is going on? Why is this happening? What is happening to my friends, my family, my loved ones? But there's hope. I want you to know that this, this evening. There's hope found in Jesus. Because you too can have the promise of life that Paul speaks of. This, this promise of a new life in the Son that is not just for now, not just for today, but it is for all of eternity in the presence of God. Do you know about this promise of eternal life? Do you, do you understand what it is that Christ came to bring, this life that we can have through Jesus Christ? Paul, in his opening uh, words, speaks of grace and mercy and peace in verse 2. Have you struggled to know peace? The whole world longs for peace, but it doesn't know where to find it. Paul is telling us here, Peace comes from God the Father through Christ Jesus the Lord. My friends, we can't really know peace until we receive mercy. And mercy is not getting what we deserve, which is the punishment for our sins. You see, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us, pastors, deacons, every member of the church, we've all fallen short. And so mercy is given, and mercy is given by grace. And grace is a gift which we don't really deserve. And yet, God wants you to have it. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it's written, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you have this gift? Do you know this gift exists? I want you to know that you can have it. And it doesn't cost you anything. It is a gift freely given to you by God. And like any gift, all you have to do is receive it. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, 
to those who believe in his name. That's all you have to do. All you have to do is receive and believe in Jesus. And I, I hope tonight, as you're listening to these words, if you haven't already made that decision, I hope that you do make that decision, even right now. And, and I'd like to hear that you've made that decision. And our church would like to hear that you've made that decision. So if you've, if you've done that, would you email us here at the church? Just simply write an email to info at riversidecalvary.com and let us know that you have made that decision to receive and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to know tonight that every one of us, every believer had to make that or had to do that at one time or another. You see, no one is naturally born into Jesus. Paul wasn't, and neither was Timothy. We all had to be born again. We had to be made new in Christ. And you see here that Timothy was brought up by a believing mother and a believing grandmother, but that didn't qualify him to be a child of God. He had to make that decision as well. He had to believe and receive Christ. He had to take that gift for himself. But this is what happens, especially as we think about the time we're living in now. You see, difficulties and, and trials and uncertainty that comes upon us sometimes make it hard for us to accept this gift, to fully comprehend, to fully understand what this gift is all about. And therefore, Paul says in verse 7, look at it there with me, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And similar to us today, as we're dealing with this virus and all that goes on with it, Timothy was living at a, at a time of extreme uncertainty. You see, it would have been much easier for Timothy not to be identified as a Christian. But Paul is calling him to, to stand and to make his gift and his calling sure. And Paul says in verse 8, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. You see, one thing we can be sure of when we receive this gift, life doesn't become roses and all that. Sometimes we suffer too. But we're not alone. We suffer in the gospel according to the power of God. Look at Paul. Paul was in prison. He was likely to be executed for his faith at any moment. And so he knew what he was talking about. He, when he said these words, he, he was just moments away from losing his life. But for most of his life, much of his life, he had held fast as a preacher, as an apostle, and as a teacher. And he had suffered, as I explain in, in, in 1 Timothy 1. But here Paul says that he was not ashamed. He was not ashamed of it because he was persuaded that Jesus was able to keep what Paul had committed to him. Commit yourself to Christ and Christ will do the work. He will hold fast. He will keep you. And he says to Timothy and to us, verse 13, he says, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love. There's that word again, the gospel 
of love, which are in Christ Jesus, that good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Imagine that, the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside you. We are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit indwells us. Now Paul, in prison, needing others to stand with him, was left alone by those in Asia who turned away from him. And this included close companions, Phygelus and Hermogenes. But others had remained loyal. Like Anisiphorus was to Paul, you and I, we need others around us as well. This is why Christ created the body of Christ in which we can become members. We, we, need, we need our brothers and sisters in Christ in good times and in bad times to encourage us when we struggle, when we go through trials. And the, and the name Anisiphorus means help bringer. I like that. Help bringer. Do you know someone who needs help? Would you become an Anisiphorus to them? Next, we look at the pastor's character, standing up for your calling, chapter 2. Again, verse 1, we read, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in that, in that which we have been given, what we don't deserve. Oh, my goodness. Instead of fear and doubt, grace gives us strength. To know that we stand in the grace of God gives us strength in trial. And Paul now uses a lot of metaphors to help us to understand what our calling in God is. He says, be like a soldier, verse 3, or an athlete, verse 5, a farmer, verse 6, or a worker, verse 15. You see, whatever our calling is... Grace applies equally to us. I love that. And so we do not need to be ashamed because we're not what someone else is. Whatever you're calling, present yourself approved of God and then go forth as a soldier goes into battle, not against flesh and blood, but against powers of darkness in heavenly places. Or, or be like an athlete running, to, to, um, running the race that's set before him. Or like a farmer sowing seed on good soil. And as a worker, rightly dividing the word of truth. We look at the practical concerns to stand up as you fight in chapter 3. And these opening verses of chapter 3, look at them. These opening verses are like headlines in our newspapers today or, or comments on most of our social media applications. As we have seen in these recent days and weeks, it doesn't take much for people to forget about neighbors, to forget about those that they are close to and to think only of themselves. It doesn't take much. And there are those, some that are, are thinking this virus isn't going to impact them. And so they thumb their noses at the governing authorities, ignoring the consequences. But not the child of God. The child of God knows 
what his role is, what his or her role is, this believer in Christ. And Paul implies at verse 10 that if we don't carefully follow Paul, Paul's teaching, imitating his manner of life, his purpose, and his faith, we could very well be among those that are found in the first nine verses of this chapter. Jesus said in Luke chapter 18, verse 8, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? We can't be Christian in name only. We must rightly divide the word of truth. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. And it's simply, simple. He says, imitate me. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And then the, the writer of Hebrews says, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. And then John the Apostle writes in 3 John chapter 1, verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. So the word of God then, the word that Paul was charging Timothy to bring, the word of God shows us how to become an imitator of Christ, growing into his image, learning then to adhere to the word of God because all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. You see, there it is again, my friends. Profitable. It is of value. Profitable for doctrine. Yeah, for reproof as well. But for correction and for instruction in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. And now we see the personal charge or standing up to the end, chapter 4. And chapter 4, verse 2 begins with Paul saying, preach the word. See, there again, that's the purpose of the church, the, pers- the purpose of God-fearing men and women. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Oh, don't turn away. Don't turn away from the truth. There's some today that are probably questioning, are we, are we seeing the days of the end? Yes, we are living in the end days. But no, I don't believe that this is the end. Why? Well, let me tell you, give you my uh, explanation. Why I don't believe this, because if I understand the Bible correctly, if I understand the word of God correctly, the days of the event, uh, the end of days that is going to come is going to be far worse than the days in which we are living currently in. So be ready. 
to convince, to rebuke, to exhort with long-suffering and teaching, verse 2. But when the end does come, and it will come, many will not want to hear sound doctrine, but they will turn their ears away from the truth. So let's fight the good fight, verse 6. Let's finish the race and keep the faith. Our work is far from over. And, and I'm, I was talking to Pastor Brent this morning. I, I, I was so impacted by seeing churches emptying, and yet the work of the church is growing and bearing fruit online and via email and via YouTube video and all the other social media applications. I'm so encouraged how the people of God are rising up, looking after their neighbors, calling friends. Are you doing okay? Can I do anything for you? Can I help you? Can I pray for you? It's, a, it's an encouraging, it's an exciting time. Yes, it's a difficult time, but it's exciting. And my friends, the grace of God will see us through. As we close, I want to read verse 22 together. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank you that you have given us your truth. Lord, that you raised up men like Paul, men like Timothy, men like my pastor, Brent. Lord, men and women in the body of Christ who have taken a hold of the truth that will not hold back from proclaiming this truth and will stand fast for the truth. For the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Lord, until they believe, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, everyone.